It's uh, good to be with you today. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 36. Our time in the Word today will begin in Genesis 36, though it will carry on uh, beyond that passage. I want to read for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the divinely inspired, inerrant word of our God. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we've had the opportunity to worship you in song this morning, to lift our voices in praise to you, to encourage those around us about the realities of your great love for us, how wondrous you are and how wondrous that you have made yourself known to us, redeeming sinful men like us. And now as we turn to your word, we are grateful once again, that you have given us your word that is not uh, simply history, it is not simply the religious reflections of uh, people's experience with God in times past. This is your very word, inspired by your Holy Spirit to communicate to us truths about who we really are and who you really are and how it is that we can know you. And so even as we look at this topic today of Esau and Jacob, as we look at the topic of your sovereign, loving election, we pray for your blessing. Help us to see what is in your word, to understand what is here, and to love you all the more. And so we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes in the Bible, we run across minor characters who simply fade from the scene and we never really read about again. I bet if I were to ask you to name all 12 apostles, you might struggle with a couple of them. For example, Bartholomew. Whatever happened with that guy, right? He's on the scene. Jesus uh, chooses him as one of his apostles. We see his name occur one more time in the book of Acts, chapter 1, and then nothing from one of 12 apostles uh, of, of the Lord Jesus. And here he's gone, Orthadius, a great name, but we don't see any, much, uh, any more of him either. And so uh, sometimes we run into characters in the Bible, those people who are in focus, they're in frame for a moment, and then um, after their time has passed, after that scene has passed, we don't read about them anymore. They just sort of vanish. But that is not the case with Edom. That is not the case with Esau. We've been introduced to Esau, who is the brother of Jacob, and, uh, and we've already uh, encountered various uh, things about him and his life and his uh, struggles that he had with Jacob and all of that. Um, but here we see sort of his story tied up in a manner of speaking, at least in the book of Genesis. 
Uh, this is really the last mention of him. This is the last full picture of him. And then from here on out, the story is going to focus on Jacob and then Jacob's sons, particularly Joseph, throughout the rest of the book. But uh, Jacob and Esau have been such major characters, and Esau has been uh, such a uh, character in opposition to, in many ways, in opposition to uh, Jacob, that uh, the author sees fit to give an entire chapter here to what comes of him, what happens uh, with Esau. And it's more than just what happens with Esau, what happens with this character. Uh, as you look at this passage, and I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter for you, I know you would enjoy seeing me stumbling over those names, uh, that's, uh, that's entertaining, uh, but I've read all I'm going to from this chapter right now. I encourage you to read it. It's a whole lot of names. It's descriptions of uh, Esau's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on, and it's a broad picture of the country, the nation of Edom, and, uh, and not just um, because that's a neighboring nation, but the, the author here several times points out uh, that Esau is Edom. He's not just reminding us of a name change. We've already experienced name changes with Abram changing his, getting his name changed to Abraham and with, with Jacob twice getting his name changed to Israel. So we're familiar with that. But here four times in this one chapter, we have the parenthetical reminder that Esau is Edom. We see that in verse 1. We see it down in verse 8. Esau is Edom. And then uh, we see it uh, a little bit farther on, we get to verse 19, uh, Esau, that is, Edom. Does, does the author think we can't remember from uh, one paragraph to the next that Esau's name has changed to Edom? No, that's not what's going on. We see it likewise in verse 43, that is, so Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom. The author is wanting us to catch here, and, and not just us in the, in the 21st century reading this, but the first uh, readers of this book would have been the people of Israel having been taken out of Egypt and going into the land of Israel at some uh, future point. It, it should have been on one time frame, and they end up spending 40 years in the wilderness. But, uh, but Moses and the Spirit of God uh, inspiring him want the readers to understand as they border up, as they approach and interact with the nation of Edom, wants them to understand where Edom came from. These people, they're actually kind of cousins to us. And so we're going to see, uh, we're going to see that um, picture uh, work itself out in this chapter. So the author is not just tying up the Esau story so that he can move on to other characters. Though he's doing that, he's also planting in their minds as they interact with the nation of Edom, where that nation came from, that that Edom is from Esau, and Esau is the brother of Jacob, whose name is Israel. So the Israelites should realize these are our cousins. This is where they came from. And so as we dive into our passage, and we're going to look at this, uh, this chapter and, and some other aspects, we see, first of all, God's plan at work. Remember, God has had a plan from the very beginning with, uh, with Jacob and with Esau, and we see that plan beginning to, to play out as we... Uh, uh, Look back at chapter 25 and verse 23, a passage we ought to have memorized. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come up in our discussion uh, several times, even today. But of course, this is that prophecy that was given to Rebekah when two twins were struggling in her womb. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And we see that play out that Jacob is actually the, uh, the son who is referenced here who's going to rule over his older brother Esau. So we see God's electing, uh, his electing choice at work here. And so what's his plan? How does it work out? Well, we see it work out in Esau's life, first of all, with his wives. Uh, verses 1 through 3 there talks about uh, where he got his wives. And of course, being a son of Isaac, he should have gotten his wives from the same place, I should have gotten a wife, first of all, but that's its own subject. <laughs> Setting that aside, where should he have chosen his family from? He should have gone back to Paddan Aram, to, uh, to family there, and, and, uh, and there he should set up his family. That's what uh, Jacob did. That's what Isaac had done, and that's what Abraham had done, first of all. But what we see here is the, the, the election of Jacob over Esau playing itself out in the way Esau chooses his family. 
from the, from the women of the land, from the people of the land who were Canaanites. They were Hittites, Hivites, they were Ishmaelites. He again and again selected wives from among the non-elect people, those who were not the people of God. He chooses to set up and build his family uh, from among Canaanites and Ishmaelites, etc. So we see uh, with his wives, we see his kind of choices. We see what kind of man Esau is. We see, secondly, what's happening with him in regard to his home. Verses 6 through 8 describe that, that uh, they, uh, he and all of his livestock and all of his possessions and his family were too great to live in the same land with Jacob. Remember, Jacob had come back rich, and he's, he's got an enormous family. He's got an enormous uh, uh, entourage that travels with him with all the livestock and all that. And so we read in chapter 36 that actually uh, it was largely because they couldn't live together that Esau moves to a different land away from his brother. And what's significant about that is that he's moving away from the land of blessing, the land of promise, that he ends up on the outs. He ends up moving to a different place. So by his selection of, uh, of wives, the way he's going to build his family, and the selection of his, his home, we can see uh, what, what is happening with Esau, what he's turning into, what kind of man he really is. And then we continue with his descendants. Uh, that's what this whole chapter is about. And again, I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but if you look down at, at verse uh, 31, again, this chapter describes the, the offspring of Esau and his kids and his grandkids and all of his wives and, and all of these things. We get down to verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So what we see happening is Esau leaves the land of promise and goes to Seir, which is the location where Edom is established, and they develop and mature as a nation much more quickly than Israel does. Remember what happens to Israel. Israel, in the end of this book of Genesis, just in the next generation, including Jacob himself, will go down into the land of Egypt, and then they'll spend 400 years there in captivity. They don't have time to set up kings. They're busy uh, building uh, without, with bricks made without straw, right? And so uh, it's not until centuries later that, that Israel, uh, God brings Israel out of Egypt and into the uh, wilderness to wander and whatnot, and it's still going to be centuries after that before they ever get to the place where they've set up their nation and decide to set up kings among themselves. Meanwhile, we see Edom go right to that. So Edom matures uh, much more quickly as a nation. And actually, uh, we will see later on, if you think, think forward in your history about the future interactions between the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness and the nation of Edom, where they ask for passage, that passage is refused. That's who's refusing passage is these we find here in chapter 36. So that's in very brief summary uh, what we see here in Genesis chapter 36, what's being described about Edom and uh, what's going on with him as a man and with them as a nation. And so with the close of this chapter, Esau moves off the scene for the rest of Genesis. We're not going to be talking about him anymore. Uh, but their story isn't finished yet. The story of Edom isn't finished yet. So we see God's plan at work in this chapter, but secondly, we see God's plan fulfilled. God's plan fulfilled. Remember, the plan back from 25, 23, you know, two nations are in your womb and two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. That promise that was made all the way back there, we've begun to see it being fulfilled and how it's going to be playing out. We saw that um, Esau has already lost his birthright. Remember, he sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup. And uh, that was a very important, that was the, his, his birthright as the firstborn, and he gives it up, sells it to his brother, and uh, so he's lost the birthright. Now, later on, Jacob uh, and, and his mother trick him out of the blessing as well. He's lost everything. He who was born first and should have been in that place of leadership and to inherit, etc., he's been disinherited. Uh, through these various circumstances. And so we see that that plan was given. And already in Genesis, we've seen that now he's, he's moved off the land, he's off the picture, he's out of the scene. And so uh, we see that that, um, that plan is already being fulfilled. Well, if you think forward, and you kind of have to um, 
remember the history of the nation of Israel and what all was going on. If you think forward to 2 Samuel chapter 8, it might do you good to turn there. Keep your thumb in Genesis 36. But if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 8, this is early in the reign of David. And again, Edom is a nation, a bordering nation, a neighboring nation to Israel itself. And when David comes to power and all these things, he's setting up his kingdom and all this, the glory of David and all the things that are going on. What do we see in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 13? David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So David had gone to war with the Edomites. Remember what the promise was, the older will serve the younger. There's going to be subjugation go on here. Well, what do we see in verse 14? Then he, David, put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. You see that even in the future of the nation of Israel, as history develops, not only the things that we've seen between Jacob and Esau uh, show the fulfillment of this promise made to Rebekah back in chapter 25, but also future history as it's moving forward, you see that there is a subjugation there. But they remain a nation, and we're not going to turn, well, it would be a good, I'm going to read several verses from Obadiah. I was going to spare you trying to find Obadiah. We'll have a race and see who can get there first. But Obadiah is early on in the Minor Prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Obadiah is one chapter, and Obadiah there is a minor prophet who is prophesying to Edom, to the Edomites. This is God's Word to the Edomites. It's always important for us to try and figure out what's going on that would cause the prophet to, um, to preach the way he does, what are the circumstances, and it seems like uh, possibly this circumstance is that Edom, remember a neighboring nation and a cousin, but sort of they've been subjugated, there's, there's enmity between Israel and Edom, just like there was enmity between Jacob and Esau, there is now between the nations that have descended from them, and, and uh, late in the... Uh, um, the reign of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, what ends up happening is the Babylonians come and they, uh, they take the, the uh, Judeans into captivity so that the southern kingdom Judah, which is, by the way, the last of the kingdom, Israel goes into captivity to Babylon. And while that's going on, it seems like Edom kind of snickered. It's finally, it's about time. Remember when David reigned over us? That was awful. That was so painful. And now they finally got what's coming to them. And not only did they stand by and watch as these things were happening, not only did they allow Israel to be plundered and, and all of the things and struggles that you read about in regard to the captivity, but they actually joined in the plunder. And so here Edom is participating and they're, they're uh, rejoicing in the loss of life and property and all of those things that happened there in uh, in Israel, in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And so, God sends Obadiah as a messenger to the Edomites. Here's what the Lord says. And so, that, the whole book, you can read it this afternoon, 21 verses, but we'll uh, start in verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Down to verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you, says the Lord to the Edomites. Continuing, your deeds shall return on your own head. Verse 16, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph, a flame and the house of Esau, stubble. 
They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. That's going to be the end of the Edomites. Now, some individuals might continue, and there, there are some other things that go after that, but this is the breaking of the back of Edom. This is their end. This is how things conclude. Now, remember, we're talking about Esau and his descendants. And so, Rebecca was told, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. And so, over the centuries of the Old Testament, God brings that plan to completion. But that's not all that we learn about God's sovereign electing plan from this story. We have to turn to later books in the Bible to see God's plan examined. God's plan examined. You're already in Obadiah. Turn a few more books to the right. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 1 is another mention of Jacob and Esau. God's choice of Jacob over Esau shows itself again in this passage. We look at verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, remember, look up at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord to Israel. So Israel is being spoken to. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not, Esau's, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. We see God's election here of Jacob over Esau show itself even in the nations themselves. This, this, this election had been declared when they were just babies in the womb. But it shows, shows itself in the nations, in the interaction between the nations, and most importantly, God's interaction with the nations. What's going on here in Malachi is that God is encouraging the people. He's calling them to repentance as well. And part of the way He's calling them to repentance is by encouraging them and reminding them of the love that He has placed on them. When you're disciplining your child... <clears throat> Do you remind your child that you love them? It makes the discipline more effective. It helps the child to understand that, that uh, this isn't uh, only a bad or painful situation, but it's done uh, out of love. Well, that's what God is doing here, is reminding them. Though He's going to say hard things to me, He says, I have loved you. I have loved you, though I have hated Esau. He's wanting them to understand that though they have gone through the exile to Babylon and all that they endured during that time, though they have gone through the difficulty of what it means to set up a nation and, and learn to proceed and, and set up the, 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 the temple and, and get life going and learn how to live before God again as a nation, though they've gone through all of that turmoil and they know that that came to them at the hand of God Himself, that it was out of love, that, that God has something planned for them. There's a purpose to what is being done to them, that God is uh, going to do new things and more things with them. But on the other hand, in contrast, see the Israelites were, were thinking, well, <clears throat> this is, we've gone through such difficult times, and when God says He loves us, how can we even see that? And God says, well, look at Esau. Look at the Edomites. Hard things came to the Edomites as well. Many of them at the hands of the Israelites, like David, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And God brought them to an end, brought the nation to an end. There was destruction at the end of it. You see, there's a difference between punishment, <clears throat> and punishment is what Esau received. There's a difference between punishment and discipline. And God was disciplining the nation of Israel. See, I have loved you. Yes, you've received uh, discipline and you've gone through hard things, but there is a future for you. I am not done with you yet because I have loved you. But, but Esau, on the other hand, has been punished, has been destroyed. And even if they try to rebuild, I stand against them, says the Lord. 
And so we see this very famous passage here in Malachi chapter 1, contrasting God's love for the nation of Israel versus what he calls here his hatred for Esau, which of course brings us to mind another passage where this is discussed. So turn to Romans chapter 9. We would be remiss if we concluded our discussion in Genesis of Jacob and Esau and all of the interactions between them and God's words to them and all that went on. We would be remiss if we did that and did not trace through the discussion, the ongoing discussion by later uh, authors about Jacob and Esau, the conclusions they draw from that, the statements they make from it. And there are other things that are said. This one, however, is the most pointed. This one is the most uh, powerful, and it's one that we want to uh, look at today. <clears throat> We're going to be looking particularly at verses nine, or excuse me, verses ten uh, through thirteen. But in order for us to uh, jump into this passage even briefly, we need to remember that in the book of Genesis, where we've spent the last couple of years as a church, we've already seen God's electing love at work. If you think about of all the pagans in the world, of all the idol worshippers in the world. God chose Abraham. Why? He was an idol worshiper like everybody else. There was nothing uniquely special. There was, but, but God chose Abraham. He called him and he pulled him out of that situation. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a land and these promises and all those sorts of things. So out of all the idol worshipers in the world, he called Abram. And then between the two sons that Abraham had, God calls one and not the other. He calls Isaac and not Ishmael. Isaac's going to be the one who receives the promises and the blessings of having the Lord as his God. Ishmael will not receive those same promises. But someone might argue in looking at uh, particularly the Isaac story with the Ishmael story, they might say, well, but that decision uh, had some reason behind it. Why would God, why might God choose Isaac over Ishmael? If you think about the circumstances, even briefly, you'd realize that, well, there might have been, you know, I could, I could foresee some reasons. Where did Ishmael come from? Ishmael comes from an illicit relationship outside of marriage with, with Hagar. And so uh, his parentage would have been called into question. His, his, uh, the circumstances of his birth would be called into question. And then uh, Isaac was chosen later on after Esau has grown. Remember, Esau is about 13 when Isaac is born. He's, he's old enough to sh- begin to show his character already. So we might, you know, a person might argue, well, you know, you can, you can look at Ishmael and see that he's not a good choice by what his character's like, and plus there's his parentage and all that stuff to think of. So it would make sense that God chooses Isaac. But then we come to this passage when we, when we look at the discussion of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Verse 10, having discussed, by the way, Ishmael and Isaac, that situation before, now verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see, he's making his argument, Paul is making his argument about election and about how God makes his choice, that, that God from the very beginning had the right and has exercised the right to call to himself uh, certain people, and he did so with Abraham, and he did so with Isaac over against Ishmael. And now when we come to uh, the story of these two, of Jacob and Esau, the story that's so familiar to us because we've been looking at it in the book of Genesis, we see his discussion of it here. And just briefly, I want to make a couple of points that he makes here. Jacob and Esau were conceived in wedlock, where they should have been. There's no question of parentage. With the birth of Ishmael, you remember that whole story, and, and all the details that went with that and how that was, that was, not, uh, that was not a godly way to, to proceed with having a child. But, but with Jacob and Esau, they were conceived within the wedlock. And in fact, they were being twins conceived in the same moment, in the same act. Instantly, there are the both of them. 
born, uh, conceived at the exact same time. And so it's not a question of parentage. It's not a question of, of uh, some immorality in their, uh, amongst their parents or who was the mom or who was the dad or any of that stuff. And then thirdly, we see that God's choice of Jacob over Esau was announced when? Remember the circumstances that brought it about. Rebecca had this, this war going on in her womb and she wondered, what is going on? When she was told the older will serve the younger. The choice was made while they were still in the womb, and Paul points out, before they had done anything either good or bad. We might have looked at Ishmael's character, and we might have seen, wow, that guy's a problem. We don't want that guy. And so maybe God chose that way. Paul says, well, let's look at this one. Here's a situation of twins born within wedlock, no question of parentage, no question of there being any kind of immorality, and the, the decision was given The proclamation was made, the prophecy was given while they were still in the womb and hadn't done anything to earn God's favor. And so we couldn't see anything that would cause one brother to be any more deserving than the other brother. Like God had done when He chose Abraham over the other idolaters. And then when he chose Isaac over Ishmael, he chose Jacob over Esau. And Paul says it was simply out of his own good pleasure and to continue the purpose of election. But God from the beginning has been doing this. God from the beginning has been uh, the one who oversees and, uh, and makes the decision. He, he elects those who will be his. And so we see that very clearly in Jacob and Esau. We see it again and again in Scripture itself. So I want to draw a couple of implications from this. First of all, Esau and his people that we saw play out in 36 of Genesis, Esau and his people are left to follow their own course, to make their own decisions, to go their own way. It wasn't as if God was in some way standing against him, making him do things he didn't want to do. Esau pursued his own course. Esau, without God's grace upon him, chooses pagan wives, moves to a pagan land, and fathers a pagan nation. And that nation, though related to Israel, becomes an enemy who revels in Israel's fall into captivity. They've stood against them again and again. And here's the implication. When the gracious, loving, electing, intervening hand of God is withheld from people, they are left to follow their own desires, and they show their true colors. And that's what happens with Esau. God's grace is withheld from him, and thus we see Esau become what he wants to be, and his nation follow that course. And when that happens, we see the natural consequences of man left to himself. Esau chose his way. And when the saving hand of God was not upon him, when this uh, electing grace of God was not at work, we don't see some uh, terrible things being done to him. We see the choices that he makes in his life and the consequences of them. God lets him be, lets him go his own way. Second implication, God's electing love is unconditional. It is not determined by some quality within the one who is being elected. It is determined by reasons and purposes that are found within God himself, not within the object of the election. Jacob is not better than Esau. Think of what we know about Jacob. Yeah, Esau has his problems, clearly. Clearly Esau has his problems, has his sins, has his weaknesses, and the ways that he goes astray. But Jacob is not any better than Esau. Any goodness that we eventually read about in Jacob is the result of God's grace working that goodness in his life. Any goodness we see in Jacob is the result of God changing Jacob graciously. And we've seen that. We've seen Jacob grow in his character. Esau has sins and Esau has flaws too, but we see that God leaves Esau in his sins and flaws. 
leaves them there. Rather than, like Jacob, doing that gracious work of changing Jacob. So Esau's sins are his own. Esau's destiny is his own. Jacob's virtues, in as much as he has virtues, belong to the grace of God working in his life. God's electing love is unconditional. Third implication, God's election has a purpose even when we don't see it. God's election has a purpose even when we don't see it. We saw in Paul's words there that he points out God's purpose of election. Verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls this came about. God had purposes. He did this on purpose. He made His choices for His own purposes. There is, a, there is sometimes a, a, a misunderstanding when we, when we point out that God doesn't make His electing choice of one over another based upon some inherent quality within the object being chosen or the person being chosen. In other words, God didn't elect Jacob because Jacob was a better guy or because Jacob was more humble than Esau or because Jacob would, have, uh, would be more spiritually minded than Esau or something like that. Those would be qualities, virtues inherent within the person that God's choosing. And thus, God would be selecting based upon criteria within the person, based upon meeting certain qualifications. When we say that, no, God elects uh, not based upon qualifications within us, but so often despite our lack of any qualification. God, God elects Jacob not because Jacob is a better guy and Esau is a worse guy. It's because of purposes inherent within God Himself. There's a confusion that when, when people hear that, they think, well, um, God is just choosing randomly. God just chooses willy-nilly. And could be you, could be you. We just don't. There's, there's a misunderstanding as if since the reason is not resident within you, within me, therefore there must be no reason to God's choice. Why do we make that conclusion? Paul says, no, there was reason to God's choice. God had His own purposes, but the purposes were found within God. God, for His purposes, the purposes of election, He makes the choices that He makes. So the reasons that he chooses what he chooses are, are resident within him, not in the objects, not in the people that he ends up choosing. That's a very, very important thing for us to understand. God is not random, but the purposes for his choice are within himself. And Paul says here, it's the purposes of election. He's talking about there are purposes behind it, and those purposes relate to salvation what God is going to accomplish. So think about the two twins. Think about Jacob and Esau. What was God choosing? Who would be the family of his son, Jesus, is who he was choosing. He was making a determination, not just of one twin over another twin. He was, he was thinking about when in the future there would be one who would come. His own son. When, when God the Son would take on flesh and be born within the nation of Israel. God was choosing the family for His own Son. One author has called the nation of Israel the womb of the Messiah. That is a great way to think about it. The womb of the Messiah. And God was making choices uh, that, that would have to do with Jesus Himself, where Jesus would be born, when He would be born, to whom He would be born, in what context He would be born, and what He would accomplish. God was choosing that. He wasn't just choosing Jacob versus Esau. He was making his choice with a purpose. And you and I all too often don't see a purpose in the choice. And, and even apart from God's electing work when it comes to salvation, who will be his own and, 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 and et cetera, who, who will not, even apart from that topic, when we look at God's providence and we see something happen and we know we have good doctrine and we know God is sovereign, even over hard circumstances and even, even over evil things done to you, God is sovereign over that stuff. For what purpose did that thing happen to me? 
So often the answer is, I just don't know. And we want to be careful, by the way, to give too easy an answer. Oh, yeah, that must have been because, uh, and then come up with something off the cuff or something glib, particularly if we're talking about the death of a child. We're talking about evil in the world like the kind we read about in the news. Why? The true answer is I don't know. We need to be willing to give that answer. But there's more to that answer, and that is that God will somehow accomplish a, a, a purpose in that that is good for His people and is glorifying to Him. How? I don't know. I can't give you an answer to that. I can't tell you. But I know those things are true. How it relates to this particular circumstance, how it relates to what's going on in Israel right now or what happened in October, and I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. But I know that God is sovereign, and I know that He will accomplish good for His people, because He promised it, and He will be glorified in that somehow. And there is pretty much the end of my answer. God has a purpose in His electing, even when we don't see it. So when we talk about the twins back in Genesis, we're talking about these nations And Paul here, we're talking about the twins that will become nations, and particularly Malachi is talking about those nations. And Paul here uses that same language and that same imagery to explain why it is that someone like Paul could ever be saved. Remember Paul's history. He hated Christ. He persecuted Jesus. He persecuted Christians, he sought them out. He had the authority and, and the wherewithal to do so, and so he did so, and he did it well. It's, it's the electing love and grace of God that makes it so such a hard-hearted villain like Paul could ever be saved. And so Paul here is talking about God's election, God determining beforehand Jacob versus Esau, God determining beforehand that Paul, of all people, would be included, that Paul himself would believe in Jesus, would have been preposterous the morning he set out on that journey. He would have laughed at you in the face. Everybody who knew him would have laughed as well. And the electing hand of God reached down, knocked him off his horse, shone that light, and drew him to himself. So that now we know murderous Saul as Paul the Apostle who wrote half our New Testament. Only by the electing hand and grace of God. And so some points of application will be done. First of all, if you don't yet know Christ, if you're on the outside listening to this and, and, and you're, you're not real sure, maybe you've heard the gospel, maybe, uh, maybe someone shared with you or whatever, but you don't, you don't know Christ, your concern should never be whether you are elect or not. That's not your concern. Your concern is to believe in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and be saved. That God, when He was making His electing choice of Jacob over Esau, He was doing so with salvation in mind, looking forward to what Christ would accomplish, that, that the Son of God would be born as a baby boy in the line of Judah, the line of David, born in Bethlehem, that he would, he would be born of a woman, born under the law, that he would grow up and fulfill that law and die in the place of those who don't, that God would raise him from the dead that he did so, he, uh, th that obedience is so that he has obedience uh, credited to give to us. He has righteousness that is his that he can credit to us by faith. And by faith, your sin is credited to him and punished in him on the cross. So that by faith alone, you enter in, you become a child of God. You receive that forgiveness. You receive right standing before God because of what Christ did, and it's yours by faith alone. Your, your concern is not, am I elect, am I not elect? Your concern is, am I going to trust in Christ? So trust in Christ. Rest in Him. 
Look to him and be saved. That's the first application. With the second application, let us be thankful for God's sovereign election. You may be a little bit like Paul. You may be uh, the kind of person that you thought, you know, if it, weren't, if it weren't for God knocking me off my horse, I would have ridden that thing straight to hell. Shouting, angry at God, denying Him, rejecting Him, serving myself, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That may be you. And if so, be thankful for God's sovereign election. And even if that's not you, you may be married to that person. Your child may be going to be married to that person. There are a number of us around here who would not be in the kingdom of God, so evidently would not be in the kingdom of God because we were like Saul in one way or another. But God, let us be thankful for God's sovereign, loving election. So often we we think about it in cold terms, but when I think about it in, in terms of my own life and my own heart, and you can think the same thing. The only reason you're in the kingdom of God is because of what God did. So let's be thankful. Thirdly, be encouraged by God's sovereign election. There are those people around you, maybe that you're praying for, who, who are just awful. <laughs> they're so far from the kingdom and they're, and they're like Saul. They're like you were. Well, the fact that, that it's ultimately not that person who's in charge... But God Himself who is in charge gives me hope for that person. That that God can do that work of saving that person like He did once upon a time with me. Like He did with Paul. And so, let us be encouraged. This is not just some cold doctrine. It's not just a a place in Romans that perhaps we don't like to read or or an an aspect of God's saving work throughout all of uh, history that we don't like to think about. It's encouraging that Paul was not in charge. Let it be encouraging to you. And fourthly, let us worship God for His sovereign election. God is that sovereign. God is that glorious that He deserves our worship. And the more we think about what He has accomplished and the more we think about His his plan that is unfolding, His his purpose in election, and as it lays out, even just as we see it in Scripture and even as we see it in our own lives, it causes us to worship. It causes us to recognize, like Job, that we put our hand over our mouth. I've got no objection. Am I going to argue with God and say, you didn't do it right, God? And God says to Job again and again, where were you when I was doing all the stuff you've never even thought of? And Job says, you're right. And he worships. And that ought to be the case with us when we read about God's sovereign election that, yes, we think hard about it, and yes, we study hard about it, and, and all of that, and at the end we realize God is God, and He deserves, He is worthy of all of our worship. And the topic of God's election becomes a comforting one when we realize our own need to be elected. And the more we realize that, the firmer grip we have on that, the more we will love God for His electing grace. Left to ourselves, we would never choose God. The only way is if God is at work, if He does not leave us to ourselves, but chooses us by His sovereign electing love, makes us His own child. So that ought to make us all the more grateful. That ought to cause us to worship and be astounded all the more at what our God is like. So even as we close our discussion today, there's the the theology, there's the difficulty, there's the struggle to understand perhaps how this works. We see it again and again in Scripture. We've just looked at a, a couple of passages today where we see that, but it ought to drive us to worship. That we recognize all the more that I am not in charge. And I praise God that I'm not in charge. 
And I worship Him for being the one who is. Let's pray. Father, this topic is, comes up in many discussions. It comes up in our hearts a lot of the time. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. We've been talking about it for some time. We see it again and again in Scripture. And Father, we are grateful that you are in charge and that I am not. We are grateful that Paul was not in charge, even of his own conversion, because he he would have continued exactly as he was like Esau did. I am grateful. And we who know you are grateful that you reached down by your sovereign electing hand, drew us to yourself that you showed yourself strong by your grace in our lives. And Father, we pray that even as we take great comfort in that, as we are encouraged in that, as we worship you in that, we pray that you would extend that electing grace. We pray for those around us who don't yet know you and pray that you would save them, that you would knock them off their horse, that you would call them to yourself like you did once upon a time for us. And that no matter how hard-hearted a person might be, no matter how philosophically hard-minded they might be, how, how a dead set against you, no matter how much they might currently hate you, reject you and reject your people, want nothing to do with you and want nothing to do with your word, no matter the condition of that person, where you choose to save, you will save. And we pray that you would save many in our own lives, in our own circles, and in our community and around the world. We pray that you would show yourself strong in this way. Father, we love you and are grateful. In this Thanksgiving season, we give you thanks most of all for Jesus, our Savior, and that you have placed us in him by faith. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.